Well, good morning. Welcome to worship and grateful that you are here. I want to go ahead and encourage you to be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. We're going to look at several passages today, but we're going to start in Romans 10 verse 13 in just a moment. We've been studying for several weeks now what we're calling the lost disciplines of the American church. Disciplines that I believe our, our fathers understood, but the modern church, contemporary church, increasingly seems to have lost some of these practices and basic disciplines that marked an earlier generation. Uh, for example, last week we talked about the practice of praying together, and I was encouraged by some of the reports that you gave to, uh, to stepping out and doing that this week, praying with someone else, and, um, and taking some time to lift one another up. And what a way that God encourages uh, His people through the prayers of His people for one another. And so I want to encourage you in that this week. I can't remember exactly what day it was, but there was one morning in my time alone with the Lord that He very, very clearly impressed on me because I was, do you ever whine? Do you ever complain? Maybe, maybe you don't, but sometimes I do. And, and so it was one of those moments, and I, I don't want to over-spiritualize this. I'm just saying it was one of those moments. And the Lord said, well, what do you need? I mean, that was what was impressed on my heart. That's what came to mind. And so I thought for a moment and listened to my own heart, and, and I told him. I said, Lord, I, need, I think I need this. And, and, um, and he said, well, ask me. And so I did. I prayed about it. I, I cried out to him about this one thing that was on my heart. Uh, later that day, uh, one of um, the men in our church had called me up and uh, he wanted to come by and just pray with me. And I said, hallelujah, I'm always good for that. And, and so he came by and said, I just want to pray for you. He said, how can I pray for you? And so I thought, well, goodness, you know, I don't get to answer that question very often. <laughs> so I thought about it a moment. And I said, well, there's a couple things. And I mentioned one, and I mentioned this thing I had just prayed about that morning. And I said, if you would pray with me about these things, it would be good. And so he did. He prayed with me about that, and I prayed for him. And then later that day, I got a call. And I can't go into the detail. That, that just would spoil the anonymity of all these things. But, but I just want you to know that the thing that I had been praying about, even though I had prayed about it that morning, I had been praying about it for some time as God brought it to mind. But I prayed with a brother about it. And within hours, God had answered that prayer. Isn't that cool? That's what the difference is. There are some things that God will only do when you and I pray on our own. In other words, he waits for you and me to pray to him, to ask him. There are other things he intends to do only when we pray together. Well, that was last week's sermon, and we don't want to rehash that. But this morning, we want to look at another lost discipline of the American church, and I believe it is the sharing of the gospel, the sharing of the gospel. And you say, well, that seems silly. That's what we're about. We're, we're all about sharing the gospel, are we? Uh, I want you to see something that, that is not to discourage you, but I want you to understand how serious this issue is in Baptist life, but I can, I can tell you honestly it crosses denominational lines. I want you to look at this graph for just a moment. This is baptisms in the Southern Baptist Convention. We'll skip that. We'll come back to that. There it is. 
baptisms in the Southern Baptist Convention from 1999 up to last year. Do you see a trend? Do you see a trend? Baptisms last year were the lowest that they have been since 1947. 1947. It is so serious that a couple years ago, our leadership in our denomination decided to put together a task force to study the issue. What they discovered would break your heart. For example, they learned that one in four churches baptized no one annually. That's about 25%. 60% of the 46,000 churches that are Southern Baptist churches, 60% of those baptize no youth, no students. 80% baptized one or none in the age group 18 to 29, young adults. 80%. And, um, and so they put the task force together, and the number one issue that they addressed or that they first pointed to was the overall profound lack of concern in Baptist life over this. That we're not disturbed. That it doesn't cause us to weep or to turn to God and say, oh God, what is wrong? What is happening? What do we need to do? I've said in doctoral seminars where Professors and students alike have wrestled with this question of why has this happened so dramatically over the last 15 years? Why is it happening? I believe there's a simple answer. In Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 14, the Apostle Paul writes these words, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? He asks three questions in rapid-fire succession. Here's the second one. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And so the logic of these verses runs like this. Those who call on the Lord are saved, meaning that they were in danger and now they're not. In other words, saved means rescue, doesn't it? From something dangerous. And we know from the teaching of Scripture that sin is deadly to the human spirit and the human soul, and it's destroying every human being. And that alone we need salvation from, but we also know that the consequences of just going on as we are with leaving sin unchecked in the human heart is spending eternity without God and facing a judgment day where we will be held account for all the stuff that we have done. There is danger in that. There is urgency in that message. That's a crisis. And Paul says... All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. They'll be rescued from that. But then listen to the logic, what he says next. The calling that someone does, where they come and they say, oh God, save me. That calling, that moment, comes after they have believed something. They have come to a conclusion that they believe is true about Jesus and who he is. And so they call only after believing. They believe only after hearing There's a message involved. And the hearing comes only after preaching. Now, that's not Sunday morning, um, 8.30, 10 o'clock at Wynn Baptist Church preaching. That word for preaching is marketplace communication. Uh, The kind of stuff we do every day, the kind of stuff when there's an important message that needs to be broadcast. Um, It is uh, announcing something. 
And so there's a, there's a definite progression here. This communication or preaching, and then people hear that message, they believe it, and then they call on the name of the Lord. God has called you and me, those of us that know Jesus, to be preachers in that sense, to share the gospel, to tell others the message that can change their life, not only on this side of heaven, but for all eternity. Paul is saying this, if you want more people calling on the Lord, you need more Christians talking about the Lord. Do you understand that? If we want more people to call on the Lord, we need more Christians talking about the Lord. So how can you and I share our faith? There are five ancient secrets that I've drawn from God's Word that I want to share with you this morning about how you and I share our faith. Here's the first one. Sharing about Jesus comes naturally only when you are following Jesus. It comes naturally only when you are following Jesus. You say, Pastor, why did you start there? Because so many of us feel it's unnatural to share our faith. Now, we share all kinds of other things naturally, don't we? A good joke. Boy, I can't wait to tell my friends this one, you know. We, we share jokes. We share news stories. We share about politics. We share about sports. We share about all kinds of things with people naturally. But it seems so unnatural for us to share about our faith. And you know, you're in a war, and the enemy wants you to think that. He wants you to think that it's unnatural for you to share about Christ. He'll lie to you and tell you that people don't want to hear what you have to say. He'll give you 10,000 reasons not to talk to someone about Jesus, but you're in a war. There is a way for you and me to share our faith naturally. Here's what Jesus says. Matthew 4, verse 18 and 19. It's on the screen. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. What does Jesus promise in this verse? He says, I will what? I will what? Make you fishers of men. What do we have to do? Follow him. He says, follow me. The picture is that Jesus is always out front. That's the image you and I need to get up with every day. Jesus is out front. He's saying, follow me, Don. I get up in the morning. He's saying, follow me. In the middle of my day, he's issuing that same invitation, follow me. And as Jesus goes before me, the conviction and the joy that I have is knowing that my day is not one big accident in the universe. God has a plan for me. He has people that he knows I'm going to encounter, people I'm going to see, people I'm going to have chance encounters with from a human perspective, but divine appointments from a heavenly perspective. He knows that that is coming, and these are people that he wants me to minister to. Now, when Jesus did ministry on earth, if you read through Mark, uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read through the Gospels, one of the things that recurs over and over again in the Gospels is that everywhere Jesus went, he got up in the day, everywhere he went, he seemed to encounter two kinds of people consistently, hurting people who needed relief from God and seeking people who needed directions to God. Have you noticed that? When you read the Gospels, do you see that? You say, how could this happen to one man? Everywhere he goes, hurting people who need relief, seeking people who need direction. Now, now why does that happen? Because God loves people. And Christ loves 
people. And it stands to reason as you and I follow him, he's going to create that same heart for people that he had for people. Uh, the Apostle Paul said later to the people in Corinthians, he said, the, for the love of Christ compels us. Not my love for Jesus, but Jesus' love for me. Jesus' love for others. That's what compels me. That's what constrains me. That's what drives me. That's what motivates me. And so as you and I follow him, I can expect to come across other people who are hurting, who need relief, seeking, and who need direction. It's so natural in that moment when you encounter someone who's hurting and seeking to share what they need the most to hear. There's a second ancient secret to sharing faith. The first one is following him. Here's the second one. Your life can draw others to God or drive them away. Your life can draw others to God or drive them away. What's the number one excuse that you hear from someone when you invite them to come to church, any church, what do you imagine the number one excuse is that you hear from people if they're going to be verbal about it? I'm not going to that church because of all the hypocrites up there. Now, first of all, let me say this. Your friend needs to understand that's a very bad reason not to go to church. Jesus understood there would be hypocrites in the church. You know that? He said, not everyone that comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He knew there would be hypocrites. He said there would be weeds that would try to pass themselves off as wheat. Jesus knew that. And, uh, and so it's a very bad reason not to come to church because of all the hypocrites because you can spend a short time with them on earth in church or eternity with them in hell because <laughs> that's where the destiny is. The, the tares are bound up and thrown into the fire. Don't worry about the hypocrites. What you want to know is find out the people who really walk with Jesus. You want to know people that know Christ. You want to know people whose heart beats in unison with him. You want to know the, the real deal, people who are truly, truly Christians. Discover what a real Christian is. But they've got a very good point, don't they? Um, when your friend mentions the hypocrites at church, they've got a good point. We tend as Christians to worry more about how the world's lifestyle affects us than we do about how our lifestyle affects them. You understand that? We worry far more about how their lifestyle affects us than we do about how our lifestyle affects them. And this is what Jesus was referring to in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. He said, you are the light of the world. Every Christian here, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Our lifestyle affects others with the result that they're looking for God after they meet you. Now, how is that possible? You say, you know, Pastor, I don't think I'm that cool. Now, some of y'all think you're that cool. But most of us don't think we're that cool. And so what is it that we have that would cause someone to bring glory to God or attention to God? Let me tell you, you, you have the same thing that every other Christian has. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside you. He indwells you. We talked about this several weeks ago, the filling of the Spirit. And when something happens to you and you turn to God for help and he guides you through that experience, people see that. 
people see you respond to pain differently. They, they see you respond to trouble differently. They see you respond to hurting people differently. And as they see that response that is spirit-led and spirit-guided, they don't see a person who's whining or complaining or being critical or any of that kind of stuff. They see a person who is full of God. And they know there's something different about them, and they know that it's not just the person, that something remarkable is taking place in that individual's life. A changed life is the best evidence of the existence of God and will always capture the attention of people that don't know God. A changed life, a different life. Well, there's a third ancient secret. The first is following him. The second is openly, you and I need to live a new life. But the third one is this, trust the power of his story. Trust the power of his story. In older evangelism training, all of the responsibility, all the pressure for converting someone tended to be put on the person who was witnessing. And if you ever took an evangelism training class in that, in that era, we tended to teach people presentation. Step one, say this. Step two, Say this, step three, say this. And if they object, well, you got them if you memorize the right answer. And see, we, we, kind of, we kind of went through a formula. And it put all the pressure on you as if you were a salesperson selling a product. When in fact, the whole dynamic of sharing our faith was about sharing a witness to what God has done in us. And ultimately, it's about sharing His story. His story is powerful. In Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. I'm not the power. You're not the power. The message itself is power. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17 18, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. This is a different word for preach. This is a word that normally is a noun. When you have a good message, it was called the gospel. It was, in the Greek word, it was euangelo or euangelion, and it means good message. When you turn that to a verb, you're talking about good messaging somebody. Good messaging somebody. He says, God has called me to good message the gospel. And, um, you know, when you get a piece of information that's just too good to keep to yourself, does that ever happen to you? Now, there's a good and a bad side to that. But sometimes if you've got a piece of good information that's just too good to keep to yourself, what do you do? Oh, i got to text so-and-so. i got to tell them about this. Or i got to call so-and-so. Or i got to go by and see them. And what we're doing in, a, in the best possible since the word is we're gossiping something good. And this is the way Paul's using this word for preach. God has called me to just good news eyes people, to gossip the gospel, to tell people about this, this message. And, and then he says, not with wisdom of words. It's not about my mechanics or my memorized presentations. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Literally, the cross of Christ nullified, emptied. Why? Verse 18. For the message of the cross 
is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What is? The message of the cross. It's the message, not me, not you, not our clever presentation. It's the message itself about the cross. Now, what is it about the cross that can change a human life forever? Well, if you think about the cross and you start breaking it down, it's not hard. And, um, and I would think of it in, in two simple phrases, Christ for me, Christ in me. Christ for me, Christ in me. And if you t- apply those sentences to the cross, you can explain everything you need to explain. Who is Jesus Christ? He's a son, sinless, beautiful, perfect, precious son of God. God sent him. He lived a life that I couldn't live. Absolutely obedient to the Father. Absolutely pleasing to the Father in everything he did, everything that he said. And when he died on the cross, he died and did something for me I could never do for myself. You see, when you sin, it stays with you forever. It's just there. It doesn't go away. And the only justice for the sin or sins that you and I have committed is eternal separation from a holy God. And Jesus took this sin that was so deadly to me, deadly to my soul, deadly to my spirit. He took all my sins on himself and he died on the cross for me. He bore my sins in his body on that tree, Peter says. And God punished him in my place. He took my place. He was my substitute. And to prove that my sins were forgiven and that eternal death was paid for, an eternity in hell was paid for, Jesus rose from the grave. It was done. It was done. Christ for me. That's good news. My sins can be forgiven. You can't forgive yourself. You can't make your sins go away. You can't be good enough for God. Jesus does that for you on the cross. Christ for me. But there's more than that. The very fact that Christ raised from the dead, the Bible says that the moment someone puts their trust in him, that his spirit comes to live in them. It's not just Christ for me, it's Christ in me. And the sins that he died to deliver me from, he also died to give me the power to overcome those sins. Not to walk in those sins indefinitely, not to keep failing over and over and over again, but as I trust him, as I grow in his character, as he helps me from the inside out, Christ in me changes me. The message of the cross, it is power. It is not inevitable that you die in your sin. It is not inevitable that you sin. Christ for you, Christ in you. It's a message that is powerful. Well, we've talked about three secrets. Follow him. The second one was live a new life. The third one is trust in the power of the message. The fourth one is this. Rely on the Spirit to empower your encounter. Isn't that clever? I love that. Thought of that this week. I said, oh, they're going to like this. Trust, rely on the Spirit to empower your encounter. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel. And they were being told not to preach it anymore by the religious authorities in Jerusalem. And they said, you know, so whether we're going to preach this or not, we, we have to obey God rather than man. And, and then they went on and said this. They shared the gospel. And in verse 32, Acts 5, 32, he says, and we are his witnesses to these things. So that's, that's the disciples. That's the apostles. We are his witnesses to what happened at the cross. But look at this. And so also is the Holy Spirit. Not just me, but the Holy Spirit is a witness whom God has given to those who obey him. So what is a witness? Well, witness shares what they understand to be true about something that happened. And we are witnesses 
to the message of the cross because it happened to me. And so I'm his witness. But you know, whenever you talk to someone about Christ, whenever you talk to someone about the message of the cross, you have another witness present. Can't see him. But boy, he is at work. And what the Holy Spirit does is he takes that message and he puts it in a person's mind and heart in such a way that they know you're telling the truth. It's called conviction. He convinces someone that you're telling the truth. And so as you share, you need to rely on what the Holy Spirit is doing. You and I fumble around. We do the best we can. We, we sometimes feel like I didn't do enough or whatever. I did, oh, I should have said that. And we, we think of all these different things. You've got to rely on the Holy Spirit. Trust him to accompany anything that you say. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, our gospel did not come to you, Thessalonians, in word only. It wasn't just us. It wasn't just us talking. But also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. God was at work, wasn't he? Not just you. Not just my words. But God did something. So if someone ever trusts Jesus because you shared Jesus with them, it is not you that deserves the credit. It is a work of God. It is a work of grace when someone, anyone, puts their trust in Christ to save them. And then the final ancient secret for sharing Jesus is this. Number five, your most effective sharing will be with those closest to you. Your most effective sharing will be with those closest to you. You know that most people, well, let me just do it this way. Um, those of you who are Christians, don't hesitate, just shoot your hand up when I ask this question. How many of you came to know Christ through a friend or relative sharing with you? How many of you came to know Christ through a friend or relative sharing with you? If this was a business meeting, the motion passed. Your sharing of Christ is most effective with your friends and your family members. Um, in Acts chapter 1-8, Jesus said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. For what? Power for what? And you shall be witnesses to me. There it is. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, there was a professor years ago in the late 70s named Oscar Thompson, and he made an observation about that verse. That that the spreading of the gospel began in Jerusalem with the people that they were closest to naturally. And then it spread to Judea, the people that they knew outside the town. And then it spread to Samaria. Now we're getting into some cultural differences. Okay, this, These were like the people on the other side of the tracks or something. Uh, there, was, there was a racial and a religious prejudice that was at work between Jews and Samaritans, but he said that the gospel is going to go there. And then it's going to go to the ends of the earth. And that's when. <laughs> uh, thank the Lord that this passage came true. And so the gospel spread starting with the relationships that you naturally have and then spreads to person X. I want you to see this diagram on the screen that, um, that illustrates what Dr. Thompson had put together. And by the way, this book, Concentric Circles of Concern, was published after he died of, of cancer. And um, he died fully believing in Christ, and, but he had done this work, and you notice that at the very center you have yourself and the people closest to you, your family, then your relatives, your friends, your neighbors and associates, your acquaintances, and then person X. See, the problem with sharing our faith and teaching 
people to share their faith is we typically do it in terms of what you're going to do is share your faith with a total stranger. And that is not the natural progression of the gospel in human hearts. The natural progression of the gospel is starts with people that you already know and that you already have a relationship with. When Andrew learned about Jesus, who did he run and go get? His brother. When Philip learned about Jesus, who did he go tell? His friend, Nathaniel. When the woman at the well met Jesus, who did she go tell? Everyone in their town, Sychar, she went and told everybody. When the demonized Gadarene, the man that was delivered of a demon, when he met Jesus, and from Jesus' feet, all he wanted to do was follow Jesus, what did he do? He went home and told everybody at home about Jesus. In Ephesus, Paul did preach publicly, but also says he went from house to house. When Cornelius invited Peter to come, he didn't just sit and hear this witness from Peter. He invited his whole household to listen in on, on uh, what was being said. And then Paul and Silas, when the jailer set them free in Acts 16, who did they share the gospel with? His whole household. And the whole household believed. And so one of the reasons we don't share our faith is we don't start in the right place. We don't start at home. We don't start with our relatives. We don't start with our friends. We think, oh, if I'm going to share my faith, it's going to be knocking on somebody's door I've never met in my whole life. And, oh, Jesus, help me. How am I going to survive this? <laughs> and that's not at all the picture that we get in the Scripture. So uh, Dr. Thompson developed these concentric circles of concern. Now, you know what the real challenge is if this is true, and I believe it is. To share Jesus with someone who's close to me, someone who sees me every day, who knows what I'm really like, how I talk, how I treat the people in my family, or my friends, or my neighbors. They know me up close. And I can tell you another reason why we don't share the gospel there. Because some of us have deeply offended people close to us. We have broken relationships or our own behavior is not a reflection of Christ, and we've got some mending to do. But as you and I go and we mend those relationships, as we make an effort, as we reach out a hand, as we show love, God can repair those relationships. But I tell you what, that is the best preparation to share the gospel with person X, is when you and in your integrity of your heart, Jesus has been at work, he's changing you. And because he's changing you, he's affected people around you, and they can see that. And then you're able to share with someone else. That's how to develop your ability to share with others. The failure to keep the great commandment. What's the great commandment? To love who first? God. And who else? And everybody else. <laughs> love God first and love everybody else. The failure to keep the great commandment is the greatest barrier to carrying out the great commission. It truly is. Our failure to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, our failure to love others is the one thing that keeps us from sharing the love of Jesus. And you say, duh, but it's true. It's true. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, the apostle writes, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone. Are you prepared? Someone came up to you and said, tell me why you're different. Tell me 
why you trusted Christ. Tell me why you go to that church every week. Tell me why you don't do the things that I do uh, morally. Why, why are you different? Are you ready to explain that? To everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this, how? With gentleness and respect. God did not call you to be an obnoxious witness. Amen? Hallelujah. God is not calling you to be an obnoxious witness. Do it with gentleness. Do it with respect. So practically, how can you do this? Five, five words very quickly. Practically, how can you do this? First, pray. Pray. Maybe in the back of your Bible or in a journal if you keep a journal. This afternoon, this week, consider this. You don't have to do this. I'm not trying to put a load of weight of legal obligation. I'm just suggesting. If it's true that God begins to share the gospel through you with those closest to you, who are the people closest to you? Just stop and think for a moment and begin to write their names down. The people that I'm close to, that as far as I know, don't know Jesus. And just list their names and begin to pray for them. And I tell you what, if you, if you pray for the people that are on that list day in and day out, the next time you see that family member, the next time you see that friend, your, your, your sensors, <laughs> your responsiveness, your, your thoughts in relationship to that person are going to be in a totally different place than they have been if you've been praying for the people on that list. Because next time you see Uncle Bob or whoever, you know, you've been praying for Bob. You've been saying, oh, God, would you, would you help Bob to see you as I see you, to know you as I know you, to know your love the way that I have known your love. And then you see Uncle Bob. And how are you going to respond to Bob? You're going to be all, all senses, all, your spiritual senses, everything about you is going to be about, I want to help Bob know about the Lord. And so as Bob talks, as he uh, does whatever Bob does, you're going to be in a new place with him. The second word is love. And you know the best way to define loving somebody is meeting needs that they have. Meeting needs. And so you see Uncle Bob after you've been praying for him. Lord, how do you want me to love Bob? And, um, and maybe he's having a bad day. He just needs encouragement. Maybe he suffered a, a loss and he needs someone to come around him and pray for him. Uh, maybe he has uh, lost his job. I don't know what it is. But as he has needs and you attempt to meet them in some way, you're showing love. Here's a third word, receive. Receive. Invite them into your life. It may be into your home. It may be to your church. It may be to your Bible study group. But invite them. Receive them. Welcome them. Jesus was criticized because he sat with sinners. He didn't sit in sin, but he sat with sinners. And Jesus was criticized for that. But we need to be like Jesus, don't we? And we need to welcome and invite people into our lives. Listen is the, la- the fourth word. Listen. You know, Jesus always encountered people who were hurting and needed relief from God. Or he encountered people who were seeking and needed directions to God. I find that people have questions about God. They would like to ask someone that they believe really walks with God. People are hungry for spiritual reality and authenticity, and if they think you're the real deal, they've got questions. 
And if you and I will listen and we will talk and we will exchange with them and listen, you will hear those questions when they come. And then the fifth thing is this, be ready. Be ready to share. You say, well, Pastor, I'm not even sure I know where to share. Well, there's a lot of things you can do. Uh, I keep a, a booklet with me almost always. When I go out, it's usually in my pocket. This sure doesn't have a pocket. But um, Steps to Peace with God, put together by Billy Graham years ago. We have bunches of them here at the church. We'll be glad to give you some. And it's a very simple, uh, it's got pictures. I like pictures. Way to share the gospel with someone. Um, another way is to sit down with one of the pastors here at the church and, um, and just say, hey, I really want to understand the message of the cross. The message of the cross. Pastor, help me understand how to break that down because if that's where the power is, then I want to share powerful stuff. What is the message of the cross? And, and just learn. Ask, ask questions and grow in this area. When closing, um, let me ask this question first. Have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard about Jesus? You see, someone has to tell you before you can hear. And then when you hear, you got to decide, do I believe this or not? Do I really believe Jesus died for me? Do I believe he rose from the grave? Do I believe that he wants to forgive me for all my sin? Have I heard this, this good news? Have I believed it? Are you ready to call on him, to call on his name? The Bible says everyone, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you ready to put your trust in him? In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. There'll be pastors standing at the end of each aisle, and I'll be here as well. We're here to pray with you. We're here to answer your questions. And we'll be glad to share with you how a person can know Christ. I usually hang around after services too, and I'm always glad to talk with people about their relationship with God. But here's a second question. This is for you, my brothers and sisters. You say, well, I haven't been sharing my faith. I'm not even sure where I'd begin. I'm not sure who I'd start with. Can I just encourage you to pray a simple prayer? Lord, I want to follow you. And would you teach me to follow you? And as I follow you, would you make me a fisher of men? Would you do that for me, Lord? And so maybe you haven't been following as you understand what it means to follow Christ. And maybe you need to take a moment and just bow your head and just say, Lord, God, I'm sorry. I realize now that there are people around me who desperately need to know about Jesus. And they're never going to hear about Jesus from me until I follow you. So, Lord, forgive me. Wash me clean. I want to follow you. Make me a fisher of men. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Let's pray together, and then we'll enter this time of response and worship. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for being here, Lord Jesus, for speaking to us. Thank you that your Holy Spirit has taken this word and applied it to our hearts. And Father, we don't want to be the generation that sees the gospel continue to be silenced by the, uh, the quietness of our own lips. We want to be a people that trumpets good news, that shares Christ. And so, Lord, whatever it takes, would you change us, each of us, as we begin to follow you in a fresh way. And, Father, for anyone here, that person here, who wants to call on your name, 
Would you guide them as they seek you and grant them the directions that they're seeking? For we ask it in Jesus' name.